Christmas isn't always merry and bright. Sometimes it evokes memories of lost loved ones, failed dreams and disappointments. And when the world is celebrating that silent night when Christ was born, some of us are enduring our own dark and quiet night. But we must remember in the dark what we have known to be true in the light. The truth that sustains us through difficulty, hardship, loneliness and despair. You are loved. God is near. God can redeem this. You are not alone. So it's a rare occasion when I would start a sermon with an apology, but I'm going to today. Because today's truth that we're taking a look at that I hope will take root in your soul and grow and bear fruit, that I hope will resonate and bring comfort, is not stated properly. It's not stated in a biblical way, actually. The statement today is God can redeem this. And I have no one to blame but myself for the improper language there. Week one, you are loved. That's absolutely true. Week two, God is near. It's absolutely true. And today, God can redeem this. The reality, biblically, is it's not that God can redeem it, but that God will redeem your pain. It's not that it's a potential or probability. It's not that he has enough power to do so, and so hopefully he might. It's that God will inevitably, based on his promises, collect all of the difficult circumstances that you've ever faced. And listen, friends, let this truth sink in, because if you just hear it with your ears, it's not going to change you. But if you hear it with your heart, it will radically change the way you see your life. Everything that you've ever experienced in terms of pain, difficulty, trial, challenge, suffering, persecution, God will collect all of them up, redeem them for his purposes, for his glory, and for your good. God will redeem your pain. Look up here on the screen. You might recognize this picture. Do you recognize this picture? This is Gray's Sports Almanac. Does anybody recognize that? What if, I, what if I showed you this picture of Marty McFly holding Gray's Sports Almanac? Or perhaps Biff holding Gray's Sports Almanac. Gray's Sports Almanac is a fictional book. It's not a real book, but it's a fictional book from Back to the Future, part due. Uh, that's what they say in Montreal, part due. For those of you who uh, don't know this about me, the very first movie I ever saw in the theaters was Back to the Future Part 1. I would say that in French, but I don't know how to say one in French. And so, um, Back to the Future Part 1, I love the Back to the Future movies. And and in Back to the Future Part 2, just as in Back to the Future Part 1, Biff is the... A villain, right? He's the evil character that you're rooting against. And what happens in Back to the Future Part 2 is that future Biff, old, crusty, curmudgeon not a nice guy, evil Biff, acquires for himself a sports almanac 
that includes every result of every game and every horse race and every Super Bowl and every highlight tournament and every cricket tournament. Thank you very much, cricket, and all of those things. He collects all of that and he has an almanac with all of those results. And then he hijacks a time machine, travels back in time, and old Biff gives the almanac to young Biff in 1952. So in 1952, young Biff has every result of every sports game that will ever happen for the next 48 years or something like that, almost five decades. And so Gray Sports Almanac becomes the ground or the foundation upon which Biff builds his evil empire and he amasses wealth and fame and fortune and all that stuff and builds an evil empire. The lesson here is simply this, is that when you know the end, it changes the now. When you know the end, it changes the now. When you know what's going to happen, it changes the way you behave in the here and now. I was talking to a friend last night who convinced his brother not to buy Bitcoin stock when it was at like three cents a share. If he would have known that that thing would have topped out at like $10,000 a share or whatever the heck it is, I mean, it's something crazy or whatever, I don't even know where it is, then he probably would have changed his behavior in the now if he would have known the end. And here's the thing, as Christians, we know the end. Now, we don't know all the results of every sports game that will happen for the next 50 years other than the Raptors are gonna repeat. Other than that, we don't know. We don't know. That we know. But other stuff we don't know, but that's not really the end that we need to know. Here's the end that we need to know, and it will change the way we behave in the now, and it will change the way we see the now. This is the end, the inevitable promise of God. And I want you to say these words highlighted in yellow with me. Here we go. He, that's Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, nor, nor any more, for the former things have passed away. See, friends, it's not that God can redeem your pain. It's that he will redeem your pain. This is the promise of God. So I want to talk about that a little bit this morning, and I want to start by defining this word Redeem, because it's not a word that we use very often. Uh, we talk about redeeming tokens or, you know, you redeem a coupon or something like that. But uh, Webster's Dictionary, the second definition of the word redeem is to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. So here's what we're saying when we say that God will redeem your pain is that he has already paid for possession of your pain. Here's the deal. Uh, when humanity rebelled through sin, we incurred for ourselves pain that we would not have otherwise incurred. We incurred the pain of death. We incurred the pain of broken relationships and a busted cosmos. And God sent his son Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. But the story doesn't end at a manger. The story doesn't even end at the cross. The story ends where he will wipe every tear from their eye. And there'll be no more pain or mourning or crying anymore. But in the meantime, the death of Jesus on the cross atoned for, he was the propitiation. Five, I love five syllable words, don't you? Oh, so good. Propitiation, it's, it means this, that his death on the cross purchased back for himself, gained or regained possession of 
all of the world, including you. For God so loved the world that he sent his son to be the propitiation for the sins. So for our sins. So not just your brokenness and not just your sin and not just your pain, but everything you've ever experienced. God has regained possession of that through his son, Jesus. And now, because it's his to do with whatever he wants. He has an end in mind, and that is total and complete redemption where mourning, crying, and pain will be no more. That's the end, friends. Spoiler alert. (laughs) That's what's coming. Now, there are stories recorded all over Scripture that are meant to help us understand in kind of temporal and snapshot type of form what it is that God can do in the midst of deep, immeasurable pain. There's a lot to pick from, to be honest. There's Job, who lost everything, kind of in one fell swoop. Family, money, lost his mind, really, in a lot of ways. There's Paul, who was shipwrecked and beaten and all this stuff for the sake of the gospel. There's Christ himself. We could have taken a look at Jesus. But my favorite story of someone who endured a great deal of pain is the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph lived a long time before Jesus. His father, or his great-grandfather was Abraham. His grandfather was Isaac, and his father was Jacob. And Jacob changed his name to Israel. That became the nation of Israel, God's people. And Joseph was one of Israel's sons. And what happened here is unfortunate because Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. If you are a parent and you have more than one child, you know that one of them is your favorite. You know that. You're not supposed to tell your children that. I'm happy to say my children are in the Bayview Kids Ministry right now. My favorite's Kaya. It just is. She's my favorite. Kanan's okay. Some of you who've been around here a little bit are like, oh, he's so funny. And some of you who are brand new are like, what is happening here? This, he doesn't like his children. No, I don't like your children. That's different. I love mine. Because he was the son of his old age. So when Jacob was older, he had Joseph. So he really loves Joseph, right? And he made from a robe of many colors to honor him, like to show that he was his favorite. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This does not go well. In fact, their hatred of their brother grew to a point that they begin to plot to kill him. They're just going to off him. And what they're going to do is kill him, take that robe, cut it up, put a bunch of blood on it, and bring it to their father and say, a wild animal got him and we don't know what happened. But then Judah, one of his brothers, has this fantastic idea. Look, he says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Like, we don't get anything out of this. If we just kill him, I mean, he's gone, but maybe we could monetize this somehow. So come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders came and passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of a pit, that is the Midianite traders, and uh, so his brothers, sorry, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt. And the brothers carried out the second half of their plan. They took that coat of many colors. They slaughtered an animal, put animal's blood all over it, took, him to, took that coat to their father, Jacob, and said, Joseph's been killed. All the while, he's simply been sold into slavery in Egypt. 
Now, before we go any further, I want you to maybe think about this, not just from an intellectual perspective, but from an emotional perspective. I don't typically ask for a show of hands here on Sunday morning. We don't do the show of hands thing, but I, w- I want to do this today. So if you would, uh, raise your hand if you have a sibling that you are very, 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 very close to. Would you shoot your hand up? Yeah, okay. So I have two. I have two siblings. I'm close to both of them. I'm close to my older brother, very, very close. I'm close to my younger sister. I cannot imagine either of them looking at me and saying, you're not worth fighting for. In fact, you're worth about 20 shekels of silver. I'm going to sell you into slavery. So it's not just the circumstances here now that are painful for Joseph, that he's been rendered a slave, but he's been rendered a slave by his own family, those who are supposed to protect him, those who are supposed to love him, those who are supposed to be on, those who are supposed to be on his team have said, you're worth nothing to us. Yikes. Joseph ends up enslaved in Egypt, and eventually he's sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was a fairly wealthy man. He had a large household to manage. And Joseph started rising up the ranks in Potiphar's house. Joseph, when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, was about 17 years old. So he's rising up the ranks in Potiphar's house, and he eventually becomes the manager of all of Potiphar's household. Joseph was a competent man. Joseph was a smart man. Joseph was really good at his job, so he got promoted. The Bible also tells us that Joseph was really attractive. It really actually says that. If you read the uh, account of Joseph's life, Genesis 37 to about 50, uh, the, the Bible tells us that Joseph was really attractive. And so Potiphar really liked Joseph, but Potiphar's wife also really liked Joseph. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? So she invites Joseph to come lie with me, right? That's Old Testament lingo for come lie with me. You know what I mean? So she says to Joseph, come lie with me. And Joseph says, look, I'm not going to offend God, right? And Potiphar's already given me so much. Why would I take from him what is not mine to take? He's been so generous and kind to me. I'm not going to lie with you, okay? So Joseph leaves that situation, and eventually he's back in the house again. And as he's speaking with Potiphar's wife, she invites him once again to lie with her. And he says, no way, no how, I'm not going to do it. And she gets offended. She gets upset. How in the world would you not want this? So she grabs one of Joseph's garments as he's running away from her and starts screaming, he tried to rape me. That's why I have his garment in my hand. He, he tried to rape me. So big guys with spears show up. And they put Joseph in prison for several years now for a crime he did not commit. Frankly, I don't know which one is worse, going to prison or being accused of rape when you didn't do it. Both of those things are real bad. I mean, at this point in Joseph's life, don't you think he could just give up? Maybe I would too. Your family has sold you into slavery. You've been falsely accused of rape and falsely imprisoned. Like at some point, don't you just phone it in? Cash in your chips, you're just done? Joseph doesn't. He sticks it out. He perseveres, knowing all the while that God will redeem this. 
And while he's in prison, God gives him a supernatural ability to interpret dreams. And two individuals that he's in prison with come to him and say, could you interpret our dream for us? And Joseph says, okay. So the first one is a cupbearer to the king that was in prison. And he comes to Joseph, he says, here's the dream I had. And Joseph said, the interpretation of this dream is this. Within three days from now, you will be out of prison and restored to your role as cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king says, that's the greatest interpretation ever. That's awesome. And it comes to pass. The second one who comes to him is a baker. And the baker comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, interpret my dream. Joseph says, great. He says, this was my dream. And Joseph says, when three days from now, you're going to be hung and eaten alive or eaten, your flesh is eaten by rats. And the baker says, why was that interpretation mine? And I didn't get the cupbearer's interpretation. Joseph says, I don't know, man. Don't shoot the messenger. It's just, I'm just interpreting the dream for you. Lo and behold, three days later, that's exactly what happens to the baker. Well, a few years, <laughs> sorry, I'll even rewind and tell you this. This is another thing that happens to Joseph that's just awful. He looks at the cupbearer and he says, okay, you're getting out. Cupbearer says, I am. And he says, and I interpreted your dream for you. Yep, I'm getting out. Yep, you interpreted my dream. Absolutely. He says, when you get out, could you just remember that I'm here? Could you just put in a good word for me? Cupbearer says, absolutely. Happy to remember you when I'm out. Does he remember Joseph? No. And he's there for another several years. Eventually, Pharaoh starts having these dreams. He has these dreams about skinny cows and fat cows. And I mean, it's just a little bit odd. And Pharaoh doesn't know what's happening and what, what, what do these dreams mean? And finally, he gets word that there's this guy in prison that used to work for Potiphar who can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh says, somebody go get that guy. So he gets Joseph. And Joseph comes to him. Pharaoh says, here's my dream. Joseph says, here's the point of the dream. For a little while in Egypt, we're going to have a time of plenty. We're going to have a time where the cows are fat and there's plenty of grain and we got everything that we need to eat. And then there's going to be a time of depleted resources, not just depleted resources, but famine. And it's going to be really, really bad. Pharaoh says to Joseph, is there any way that you could be my right hand man and facilitate the next few years of plenty so that when the years of scarcity come, we're not completely up a creek without a paddle? Joseph says, perfect, and he's Pharaoh's right hand man. The right hand man in all of Egypt. And his job is to ration off food and to make sure that people have plenty to eat, but there's also savings for that famine. And Joseph is working on that each and every day. And lo and behold, just as Pharaoh's dream indicated and just as Joseph interpreted, the years of famine come. And it's not just years of famine for Egypt, it's years of famine for all of the surrounding areas including Joseph's dad and his brothers that he hasn't seen in a quarter century. So Joseph's dad, Jacob, says to his sons, why do you look at one another? Behold, I have heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So sure enough, Jacob's sons do exactly what their father asked to do, and they go to Egypt and they beg to buy grain, and guess who they have to beg? Joseph. Now it's wild at this point because Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him. 
Remember, it's been like 25 years. And last time they saw Joseph, his back was leaving them towards slavery in Egypt. He probably didn't look all that good. Now he's probably got Egyptian costumes on or wardrobe on and the external things that make him look part of that culture. He chooses not to speak to them in their native tongue of Hebrew. So they don't know who this guy is. And all the while, Joseph knows who his brothers are. And I'm just going to zip to the end of the story here, but eventually Joseph forgives his brothers for what they did to him. Joseph says, I forgive you and it's over and I'm lifting the vengeance that I would have taken out on you. Again, you should read it in Genesis 37 through 50. And his brothers are, you can't, I can't believe this. You're, you're extending us grace. We, we sold you into slavery because it was too big of a hassle to kill you. And, and you've gone through all this, being falsely imprisoned and falsely accused and everything. You, and this is all our fault. This was what we purposed for you in your life. And not only are you going to forgive us, but Joseph said, I'm going to provide you with plenty to eat. Until Jacob got sick. And the brothers started to wonder, okay, wait, Jacob had nothing to do with this. Our dad, he had nothing to do with this. Joseph was a favorite. He loved Joseph, cared for Joseph, had no idea that his son was in Egypt for 25 years, thought he was dead the whole time. And he begins to get sick, and the brothers are thinking, Joseph is not going to take care of us anymore when Jacob dies. Jacob eventually dies. They panic and they think Joseph is now going to withhold all these resources. He's going to sell them into slavery. He's going to execute them. And he's well within his rights to do so. And then they go to Joseph and they say, Joseph, have mercy on us. And I love Joseph's response. Listen, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's my absolute favorite statement in the whole story of Joseph. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I don't know if you see here, but this is really a very interesting theological concept. But you you see that uh, his brothers had a purpose They meant it, they had a plan and a purpose, but God meant it for good. In other words, what the Bible is telling us here is that God's purposes always trump the purposes of man. Did you know that? No matter what persecution you might be going through, no matter what unfair termination, no matter what uh, plans and purposes of harm that people have for you, God's plans for you are always to prosper you, not to harm you. plans to give you a hope and a future, and his plans always trump man's plans. No matter what the purposes of man are for evil against you, God's purposes are always for good, and he will always redeem each and every time. Here's the deal, though, that I think that we could believe this promise intellectually. I mean, I think for a lot of us, even in the room, and I know that not everybody in the room is a Christian, but a lot of us in the room are Christians, we're people of faith, and so when I say that God has purposes for his glory and your good, and no matter what you face in your life, 
God will redeem those things for his glory and for your good. And a lot of us, a lot of us would say, yes, intellectually, I agree with that. But we don't always live that way, do we? When those little, you know, difficulties, challenges, when the weather does what it did yesterday, how bad was that? God, you can't redeem this. It's irredeemable. Or, like some folks in our congregation, you lose a baby about two weeks before the due date. Or you bury your son. No mother should ever have to bury their son. Or you have two adoptions fail. We did. Or you go through mental and emotional anguish and despair. You go through your own dark night of the soul, your own silent night. Then it's very, very difficult to believe this truth that God will redeem. And I think there are two reasons why it's difficult. And we actually see these things in the life of Joseph. And we see Joseph struggle with these things a little bit, but eventually come to a place where he trusts God with two really big things. And I want to review what those two things are to help coach us a little bit to be people who believe in all circumstances that God will redeem this no matter what. Here's the first struggle we have, is that we want to define that word good. We, We see things happen to us in our life and consequences and things like that, and we name them Bad. That's a bad thing. Okay? And, and perhaps we don't even know how they could work together for good, but that's a bad thing. And a lot of times that's true. A lot of times that's true. In fact, let's just take a look real quick at Romans 8.28. This is the one that everybody always quotes. Like when people are going through really difficult times, just say, and, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you understand that what Paul is saying here is that all things work together for good, but not all things are good? Do you understand that? There's a very, very big difference here that all things, God collects them all and he purposes them for your good and for his glory, but not all things are good. Your divorce is not good. That's not a good thing. God wouldn't say, oh, that's a really good thing. The the volcano eruption that just killed a bunch of people in New Zealand, when, when some high school kid picks up a gun and goes in and shoots classmates, those are not good things. But God in his grace and sovereignty and power, extraordinary power, is able to pick up the bad things and work them for a good thing. This is what Joseph experienced in his life. Everything that we just talked about that he experienced, we would say those are bad things. People getting sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, falsely imprisoned, forgotten about, neglected. Those are all bad things. And yet God purposed them for good. And and so here's, here's the bummer, because if we take it uh, unto ourselves to define the word good, we're going to miss God's purposes. Because lots of people love to quote Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. And then the very next verse, God actually defines good. You ready? Here we go. All things work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Please don't get caught up on foreknew and predestined this morning. Some people are going, oh, don't get caught. That's not what we're talking about. Conform to the image of his son. 
In other words, God's good for you is becoming more like Jesus. Did you see it? And you might not think that that's good. You might think that these are bad things happening to me. And all the while, God is working those bad things to make you more like Jesus. And I will tell you, people of God, those who are seasoned Christians would affirm this in their own life. I have grown to be more like Jesus more when I am in pain than when I am in celebration mode. That's just what happens. God uses pain. For his good, which is conformity, you conformed into the image of Jesus. This is exactly what Peter says. He says the same thing. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various, here it is, trials, pain, suffering, so that, here's the purpose, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's good for you is walking closer to Jesus and becoming more like him. That's God's good. That's God's good. So in the middle of your pain and difficulty and challenging circumstances, looking for the ways in which God is going to accomplish his definition of good, not your definition of good, love you. <laughs> you don't get to define that word. God gets to define that word. You know, it's interesting that when we go through this with God, we have this conversation with God, like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? All the while, God's going, I'm using these difficulties to accomplish my good in your life. In a lot of other areas of our life, this same type of thing happens, and we don't get quite as frustrated. In fact, I'll, t I'll tell you a story. Um, I recently moved, many of you know that, we, we moved um, in July of this year, and then I, I just recently in the last couple of weeks discovered that my address on my driver's license does not reflect my current address. And I, I was able to realize this because the police officer who pulled me over pointed it out to me. So then at that point, I discovered that it didn't match. And he said, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, no, I have no idea. And he said, you were speeding. And I said, oh, really, I was. I was going like 94, 103, or I don't know, something. 2,000 kilometers, I don't know. Um, he said, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a 60 mile an hour zone, you're, or 60 kilometer an hour zone you're going through back there at about 104. And I said, well, that is, that is above the posted limit, isn't it, officer, right? So he says to me, here's a couple things. Uh, I'm gonna write you a ticket. And I said, fair enough. It was very strange because... You know, I, I was speeding. I mean, it's, you know, and I, t you know, you tell yourself, like, it's a speed trap. It's a speed trap. No, it's not. Like, they're not trying to trap you. They're trying to slow you down so you don't hit a child at a school, right? <laughs> like, I tell myself, this is a speed trap. And he says, whatever, here's the ticket. So, uh, so I had to pay a ticket and I was late for work. And I was late for work. In my mind, two things. For me to have to pay a ticket, good or bad, bad. For me to be late for work, good or bad, bad. My coworkers might disagree. They're like, we love when he's late. Now, it's a, those are both bad things. But listen to me, a greater legislative body for the municipality that oversees the Bloomington and Warden intersection, which is where the speed trap is, by the way. <clears throat> also, side note, if any of you know how to get out of tickets, would you come talk to me after the service? I'll pray for you, and then you can get me out of the ticket. 
those are really side notes. The most important thing is here that a greater legislative body who governs municipalities determined what the safe posted, the safe speed limit is in that neighborhood, and they have determined the greater good. I might think it's bad for me to be late to work. I might think it's bad for me to have to pay a ticket. But those two bad things are now working together to slow me down in that neighborhood, don't you think? I definitely don't go 100 anymore. I mean, I don't, I don't go any faster than 95 for sure going through there. I'm down to 60. Why? Because if I was to hit a kid, if somebody was coming out pulling their recycle out, if there's snow or ice on the road and I'm speeding, I'm putting myself or others in danger, the greater good here is the safety of my fellow townmates, not whether I'm late to work or whether I have to pay a ticket. And we call those things bad and maybe they're difficult and maybe they're sufferings, but they're working together to accomplish a greater good. See, here's the deal. Just like that legislative body, God is smarter than you. He's been around longer than you have. He sees a bigger picture. He determines what is good and uses what might not feel good in the situation to accomplish his good. You gotta let him define it, not you. Here's, here's the second thing that's challenging for us, and it's challenging for Joseph, I'm sure, is that we want to determine when. How quickly do we want God to work things out for our good? One, two, three. Now, that's right, that's right. We could just go home. I don't even have to talk about that anymore. Like, we live in a society and in a culture where we can get things immediately. Like with Netflix and Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, anybody doing the Disney Plus thing? Yeah, if you have kids my age, you're doing the Disney Plus thing, I guarantee you. Do you remember the days, like, I know it's archaic, but you had to actually get in your vehicle and drive 10 minutes to a blockbuster video? You remember that? And you remember you used to go through the things where they had like the, the VHS case on the front? Anybody rented VHS from Blockbuster like I have? Yep. My brother worked at Blockbuster Video for a summer. We watched every Bruce Lee movie ever made. It was glorious. It was so good. And you had to flip through the things and then you have to bring the tape all the way home and then you watch it. And then before you returned it to Blockbuster Video, what'd you have to do? Rewind it, right? Rewind it. Remember, you know there's kids growing up in a society where they, they will never, ever hear the phrase, be kind, rewind. Never. <laughs> never. This is what's happening to the youth today. I mean, it is a mess. It's a mess. And, and the really rich people that you know, not only did they have a VCR, what else did they have? A rewinder. A rewinder. Because when do we want it? Now, right? We want to determine when. And when Paul starts talking about these uh, struggles, these difficulties, these challenges that we go through, look what he calls them. He says, they're light momentary afflictions. They're light momentary afflictions. And they prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. I really love that he uses time words to talk about these light momentary afflictions. Because compared to eternity, they are temporal and quick and light and momentary. I heard a joke one time about a guy who went to God and he said to God, I've heard that for you, a second is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a second. Is that true? God says, yeah, I exist outside of time and space. A second is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a second. The man says, 
Could it also be true that a penny is like a million dollars and a million dollars is like a penny? God says, why on the cattle on a thousand hills, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So sure, a penny is like a million dollars and a million dollars is like a penny. So the guy says, would you give me a penny? And God says, sure, give me a second. Is there going to be one more wave where it hits people? One more wave of laughter. All this, stuff is, all this stuff is relative. They're light momentary afflictions. And even the people in our congregation that are, that are friends of mine that are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s and walking with Jesus for a long time, the pain that they experience is no less painful. But I, I can tell you they see it as light and momentary compared to an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Men and women of God, the uncomfortable stories of unbelievable pain are yet unfinished. One day, and it might feel like a long time from now, but for God, it's just this. It's just that. Those light momentary afflictions will all work together in order to accomplish God's great purposes for you. Take it to the bank. You can count on it. God will redeem it. I wanted to encourage you with that today, really, as your pastor. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how your marriage is. I don't know how your work life is. I don't know how your financial life is. I don't know what's going on in you emotionally. I don't know what your relationships look like. I don't know if you've gone through some of the stuff that I've gone through in my life, a dark night of the soul. I don't know what it is. But what I can tell you is that no matter what it is you're going through, God will Redeem it. But in the meantime, sometimes life feels irredeemable. Life feels irredeemable. And so what I want to do is take a little bit of time at the end of our service today to pray for those of you who are going through whatever struggle, suffering, and difficulty that you're in the middle of. And what we're going to do is allow James chapter 5 to kind of shape that prayer time. Look what James says. It says, be patient, therefore, in suffering until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. So in the midst of suffering, be patient. Then he gives us a pretty high standard to live up to. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Thank you for that example, James. The man who lost everything in one fell swoop. This is what we've got to live up to. (laughs) And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what do we do in the meantime, James? He tells us, is anyone among you suffering? Is that you? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. We do that here. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is something that we do here on a fairly regular basis, either in the context of corporate worship or even just alone and go to homes or you can come here and our elders will pray for you. What we want to be able to do uh, today is wrap our arms around one another as a community of faith. And if there's something you're going through, a struggle, a difficulty, a challenge, whether it's 
physical illness, whether it's infertility, whether it's mental illness, whether it's uh, the brokenness of having just buried somebody that was close to you in the last several weeks, whatever it is, we want to pray for you and pray with you. And if you so choose, we'll do exactly what the scripture commands is anoint you with oil and pray over you. Our elders will be right down front after the service. In the meantime, my encouragement to you today is that not only are you loved and you are extraordinarily, extravagantly and unconditionally so, not only is God near to you and he is because he came near in the person of Jesus Christ to be as near as possible, so much so that even the spirit of God dwells within those who call him Lord. But in the midst of all that you're going through, God will redeem it. Let's pray. So God, we are grateful for your presence here with us. Grateful that we can trust you. And God, in that very same breath, I say that we are grateful we can trust you and we also ask you to help us trust you. Help us trust you to define good. Help us trust you to determine when as we endure with patience and forbearance, as we, for the joy set before us, just as Jesus did, endure difficulty. God, would you remind us that you, like a master weaver, are weaving the tapestry of our life. And right now we see the underside knotted and tangled and a mess, and it's even really unrecognizable as compared to the top side. But one day... We won't see through a glass dimly anymore. We won't see faded. We won't see skewed. That tapestry will turn around and we'll see all the ways in which you are weaving the tangled knots of our life together to make something wonderful out of them. Help us to see it, to trust you with it. And in the meantime, God, help us to wrap our arms around one another as a community of faith and even wrap our arms around our city and support one another in the midst of the dark night of the soul. In Christ's name, God's people said. Um, as long as I'm pastor at Bayview Glen, we will sing this next song at Christmas time. It is my favorite Christmas hymn. It's called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's a prayer of longing. It's a prayer of invitation. It's a prayer uh, and a song that you can sing if you're in that dark night of the soul and say, Jesus, I need you to come. I've been anticipating, I've been expecting, and I've longed for you. So come thou long expected Jesus. As the worship team leads us, I would invite you to stand as we sing this prayer together.